The Ringer's Dave Hill takes you on a journey into the underground lives and careers of six professional gamblers. This eight-part podcast is a unique look into the gambling world that you don't want to miss. Check out Gamblers on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to Black on the Air. This is Larry Wilmore, your host of the podcast um, one of my favorite people in journalism Soledad O'Brien is my guest today um, man it's always great talking to her she's just great just awesome she was on my show Wilmore uh, too and it was one of our favorite episodes and we're going to talk about a new show she's doing now called Disrupt and Dismantle it's on BET and some other Viacom outlets and man, she really covers some interesting things about um, like things like environmental racism, school to prison pipeline, uh, some land issues that have been systemic, uh, things like that, um, uh, police in Chicago, all kinds of stuff. It's a really, really, really interesting uh, show that is going to be out soon. So we have a good conversation about some of that stuff, um, her thoughts on journalism and things that are going on. I think you guys will enjoy it. So I don't have a lot today. I don't know why. My tank is just empty today. It's been an emotional week, you guys. You know, I told you after, you know, my brother died January 30th. We finally were able to bury him last Monday. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Took so long. You know, that was very emotional. But it was good to have closure on that, you know, and to be able to move on. Um, There have been other family members, some uh, cousins and stuff, a couple of cousins that passed away this past week and the other side of my family, my, my ex-wife, um, her aunt passed away. She was a great lady. So there's been a lot of that happening in here in my family. So it's, I realized today, like I can feel it. It's been an emotional week, man. Um, but a lot of those emotions are kind of, I think they're kind of like, you know, cleansing sometimes too, to be able to get it out and spend time with family when you can, you know, and just, just let those emotions just go through. So once again, people that are going through that, let the emotions happen, let it go through. And, you know, I'm starting to feel a lot of the weight of that kind of lift, which is good, you know, which is good. But then, but then, you know, you turn on the news and there's all this stuff going on. Oh my God, those two shootings that happened, uh, or was it three? I can't remember, but that latest one in Colorado is just terrible. You know, when you think of all those lives just needlessly just taken away and snatched away. And, you know, we immediately get into those same arguments about gun control and that type of thing. And, you know, I, I really want to have, I should do an episode about guns. Um, Cause by the way, I've talked about this issue a little bit, you know, and I don't like assault weapons out on the street and that type of stuff, you know, but I'm not like anti-gun, you know, or that type of thing. In fact, there's a big movement right now with black women and guns. I want to, I want to cover that in one of the shows. Um, taking it for protection and that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, protecting yourself with a gun, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with, you know, having, you know, security people who are armed and that type of thing, people who are trained to do it. But uh, when we're allowed these certain types of weapons to just be on the streets, it's just bad. And how do we solve that? A lot of different, uh, it's a multi-layered thing that's going on because it's in the culture that people feel like they can have whatever the fuck they want. I mean, it's almost like people feel like they can have a tank, like a tank is guaranteed by the constitution. And I don't know, man, it's crazy. And then mixed in with that, of course, is all the hate crime type of stuff, you know, uh, especially with regards to the Asian American community. Now I hope this issue doesn't just go away after this week. Um, this is one of those undercovered stories that I hope gets a lot more attention because um, I feel like the Asian community in many ways has been ignored in terms of their problems and everything. Some of that is cultural on both sides, you know, but I think we're just in a different time now where people are just tired of it and, you know, they have a lot to say about it. 
and another complicated issue. It's not just, uh, it's not as simple as it seems. And that's something I'd like to cover uh, more coming up too. So, like I said, I'm a little worn out <laughs> today, just feeling that, you know, that type of thing. But I think you will enjoy this talk with Soto Dad O'Brien. Uh, and we've got some great guests coming up in the next few weeks, a lot of different types of conversations that I think you guys are going to enjoy. I will continue to try to bring that to you as best as I can. Okay, we'll talk to Solo Day right after this. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, guys. One of my favorite people in the world. I hope she knows that because she is... And by the way, she was on my show, Wilmore, and we could not stop talking about how much we love her so much. I, honestly, I love it. the more, whole, more. Don't no, stop. the whole <laughs> team, we were saying that, and we're actually using that episode to submit for awards and stuff. That's how much we loved it. Hey. But you guys know her from being on TV uh, forever, CNN, all this other stuff. But she is all over the place now. Uh, the main thing she's doing is a new a kind of a investigative journalist type of show on BET. It's called Disrupt and Dismantle, also appearing in other places. And she, of course, is the CEO of Soledad O'Brien Production. Soledad O'Brien herself. Welcome to Black on the Air. Hi, thank you. What a nice introduction. I love uh, it. What I, do I get an award? Can I get a statuette if we win something, please? You should. That'd right? be great. I know. Even if you guys have to have to make it in the back and just give me one. I just really I know, one. exactly. We'll give you a big heart that's like right? gun, gun, just gun, gun. make sure it's on a thing that I can put it on the wall. I like that. I know. One of the reasons why I love what you do is because you're you're fierce and honest and you're very you're so thorough and straightforward. You've always kind of been that way to me. You've always struck me as somebody who's not bullshitting, you know, and I've always loved that about you. Even, you know, I remember you're doing a morning show. You were always just a breath of fresh air, you know, <laughs> when I would see you in those days and, well, I appreciate you know, the specials you. you've done over the years, you kind of broke ground with some of those things. Uh, Latinos in America, I think was yeah, one we of did them. Black in America. Latino. Black in America. I mean, you know, it wasn't me naming them, but it was like Black in America, Gay yeah, in America, I know, Muslim I know, I know. in America. <laughs> like, but still, nobody was doing the, those things. Yeah, you know? crazy, right? Crazy. I know. Now everybody is like trying to do that type of thing, you know, just, yeah, just presenting, presenting us in a way that we don't get to see it. You know, like there's, with the stuff that's happening with the Asians right now, I think right. people are realizing there's a lot of information out there that's not getting out there, you know? From history. Yes. <laughs> like the Chinese it, Exclusion Act that exactly. might help you put some context to where we that's are right. today. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, it's it's been so unfortunate. I think a lot of journalism has turned to entertainment. And maybe it's just been that way for a long yeah. time. But I do think there are some great places where you can get serious reporting and, and interesting. You know, it doesn't have to be boring. It can just be interesting right. and informative. Well, Patty Chayefsky famously, you know, sent that up in network years ago, which has always been one of my favorite movies. And that was in the mid 70s when he was like when calling that out. He saw it know. coming and here we are. Absolutely. And it wasn't even he saw coming. He was commenting on what right. he already saw, which is kind of fascinating, you know. Uh, so tell me about this new project. It's called Disrupt and Dismantle. Right. Yeah, someone said to me, wow, that's very aggressively named. <laughs> oh, really? That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it takes a look at structural racism. So, uh -huh. which is so funny because in my entire career, and this is my 32nd year or something uh, in TV news, never in my life would I imagine that you could run into someone's office and say, okay, six part series, structural racism. And they'd be like, we so love it. Let's yeah. go <laughs> Stop talking. Go shoot. Right, go shoot right. right. So um, we wanted to take a look at one. What is structural racism? Because a lot of these conversations were happening in the really in the wake of the George Floyd killing. And, and what is racism and what is structural racism? And for me, structural racism is more complicated, right? Because it's very easy to say, oh, my God, did you see that lady going crazy in the Walmart calling everybody the N word racist versus there are systems and structures that have created a status quo that have really held certain people in place. And how do you 
disrupt and dismantle them. Like, what do you do? So in this particular series, what we wanted to do is connect the past, like really look into what was happening in the 30s? What was happening in the 40s? How do we get here in terms of policy? And then also look at, okay, for these individuals, you know, everybody, we always start with this word I hate, which is a character, you know, but someone's sort of personal right. story. But you're and telling what, a story. Yeah. You know, what does she do in order to, to take down the system? Like, how does it work? Who are her allies? How does she think about it? Because there's a real strategy involved. It never, ever, sadly, is, you know, everyone recognizes how they're just being so mean and so wrong and they just turn around and do a better job. It never works like that. It literally is a bunch of people coming together to fight a system. So we wanted to look at both that system, how we got here and how, how do you, how do you disrupt and dismantle it? So yeah, it's kind of an aggressive title, but, but it's pretty accurate. Yeah. And it feels like maybe you're kind of uh, shedding light on these non headline type issues that are out there, but are certainly very important. And, very prevalent in many places. If I, I got to see three episodes of the first one. I thought, man, this is such a huge issue. Environmental racism. I mean, and it's the thing about that. Well, you go ahead and tell us what is environmental racism. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Cause it's, it's a, you talk about a provocative, you know, two word title, you know, when we started doing this story, this woman said, uh, she's in Texas and she said, uh, so I have this, this mountain, of, of shingles that this guy yeah. just dumped basically in my backyard. And so when people say they have a mountain of shingles, when I say I have a mountain of paperwork to get through, or I have a, a mountain sure. of laundry, you're like, wow, a very big, right. But manageable pile. This woman had, I pulled up and I was like, Oh my God. Oh shit. A, She's not kidding. It's, right. it's a mountain, a <laughs> hundred thousand tons of shingles. Crazy that a guy had had dumped in her backyard and she had been fighting for years with city hall and trying to figure out like one, why would you ever give this person a permit, which was illegal? And two, how do we move them? How do we get rid of this mountain? It's literally about 10 stories high. I mean, it's an Mm -hmm. actual mountain. And this was in Texas, right? Oh yeah. In South Texas. Mm -hmm. And so what we wanted to figure out was one, isn't it interesting how those areas that were redlined back in the 1940s really very clearly match up to those areas today where there's heavy industry, where there's tons of pollutants and tons of you know toxic uh, dumping that's happening. And, and so understand that redlining meant you can only live in certain areas. And isn't that interesting that those very areas sort of correlate with today where there's dumping and high pollution? It's not an accident. And so that's environmental racism. Like there is this racist element to how people are treated environmentally. We know that certain people are more exposed to those things that cause asthma. There's a a race component to their health. There's a race component to the safety and the quality of their environment. The guy who did the dumping actually told me because I called him up and he's like, yeah, I would never want to live there. Yeah, I know. So well, why are you dumping it there? Yeah. Right. I mean, illegally. So we wanted to kind of get into her story about it. And it's mm-hmm. a really beautiful plot of land. In fact, the whole neighborhood is quite rural and was sort of zoned for agriculture. And then they've sort of allowed some some dumping in there. And her daughter has horses and they ride horses in the back. It's Texas. They ride horses around in the backyard. But there's this, you know, and, and shingles, by the way, uh, you know, are made of this asphalt, which as it gets hot in Texas, they start decomposing. And then there's this dust that has a lot of fiberglass in it, right? So it's just unsafe. It's just not, it's just not healthy. And not only not healthy, it's dangerous to breathe in. And so she had actually gone to the Dallas Morning News originally with her story, which is one of the reasons I love local journalism. And because of that, we got that story. And so we started started following what she was doing uh, because in her case, you know, her her councilman never noticed. He said, I never noticed that she, <laughs> literally it's a mountain. Uh, so we, you know, we wanted to understand how do we get here historically? How do we get here that everybody somehow didn't seem to care that the permitting was illegal, was was fraudulent? I mean, this is crazy. And then how was she fighting back and who was she bringing in as allies to fight to make sure that the neighbors in, you know, people in her neighborhood would be able to, I mean, I have, I think what have, what's the basic that we all deserve, like basically clean water, clean land, right? You, they have a Creek in their backyard that was disgusting because the runoff from these shingles was in the Creek. I mean, it was just so unfair. 
So I don't know. I get so mad about injustice, which means over the last few years, I've been very pissed off. Yes, yeah. <laughs> We're well, all done. I, I, I like the fact that you went into the history of it. So people know this isn't just like a one-off type of thing. And just the, to me, I'm always struck by the habit of, of treating a class of people like they don't matter and how ingrained that gets into society where the guy doesn't even think that there's people that live there, you know, and that he can just dump this, you know, and how, and, and by black people too, you know, a lot of the, the, mm-hmm. um, the people who are in city government in Dallas are people of color. Right. You know? So I think there is this wave where the status quo just goes like, that's the way it's always been. It's just the way it is. And, and so I, I do think that it takes a lot to push back on that. Uh, and it's, laziness and it's money making. And I think all of those things mean that those people don't matter because they don't write big checks to campaigns. Trust me, you would never see that happen in a community where, you know, they felt that that was a community where there were voters and those voters, you know, would leverage their voice and their money. Interestingly, you know, at the end of that segment, you realize that those people in that neighborhood you know, have to be part of the rezoning. Like they recognize too, that they can't just sit there and wait for everybody to do the right thing. They will not. So they need to demand rezoning and they need to demand something better for themselves. And so I I do think that there's sort of a good lesson all around. If you want to make change in your community, this is what you have to do. Yeah. This was one of those issues too, which to me was, you know, and this is one of those rare issues where I almost felt like racism doesn't quite tell the whole story because it's really, as you pointed out, like there's black people in charge there too. It's almost classism. I had uh, Aaron Brockovich on my pod a while ago, and she's been fighting this, you know, just with poor people right. in general. And I, th- I think it's the way we just treat poor communities and poor people in general too. It's such a horrible state where they can just they can just be poisoned, and as long as the city's making money. We don't care, you know, or as long as the company is is profiting that we don't care what happens with poor people because. And we, right. We only care about if they have money. And it, that is a very big underlying tone of all this. And of course, there's a correlation between poverty and people of color. So I, I do think that 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 is where there is this intersection. But you're exactly right. And it's it's listen, I remember covering Hurricane Katrina back. I think that was 2005. And you just realize, like, people just sort of didn't care. They just didn't care. I, I can't put it any other way. And, you know, a culture and, of neglect. Yes. So, and also I think in those communities, they too have to decide that they're not going to be neglected and they have yeah. to leverage their voices and say, Oh no, no, you know, we're going to vote and we're going to remove you. And we're going to have uh, some kind of power that doesn't have to be wrapped in money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Local politics and local action Man, it's I feel like it's not talked enough. We talked about local journalism a bit when you were on my show. And I know that's important too. I mean, local journalism, as you said, helped you know what this story is. You know, how in how important is that marriage between reporting on these issues and people who are, are living in a place really getting involved and having a stake in it? Yeah, it's one of the reasons I think that the, the death of local journalism, and we've just seen so many news organizations close mm-hmm. down in the last couple of years, yeah. it's devastating because, you no, know, they're the ones that sit through the school board meeting and tell mm-hmm. you, wow, that they're changing all they have the a stake. textbooks. Right. <laughs> Do you know there's this new rule? Um, and as we have seen in the last days, certainly coming out of Georgia, that lots of people like to do a lot of things in some kind of a sec- you know, secret way or with secrecy. And so you need local journalists to show up and say, we're going to explain it and we're going to show you what's happening. And I think they do a better job in terms of being very clear on their audience. Sometimes I think the national media looks at politics like a game. I mean, whatever person asked Joe Biden about, you know, are you running for reelection in 2024? You're like, wow, that was the biggest stupidest question ever. I cannot believe that question was asked. The whole entire press conference is an embarrassment. But but of course, the answer is going, let me tell you the answer. Yes, of course I am. Until I tell you that, no, I'm not. Right. Because of course. So what a complete waste. And and I think national politics, there's this idea of like, I'm a heavy hitter. I'm playing with the big guys. That question is going to get me. I remember people were tweeting news. Biden says he's running for reelection. You're like, it's eight weeks, people. I know that's not news, you know, and it's not news. You made that up. Local news. You can't really get away with that bullshit for very long. You actually have to serve your audience. I did a story with a young woman who's amazing. And I think she's in Tallahassee, Florida. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, when they were starting to give out vaccines, uh, a lot of the people, obviously, because they were 80 and 90, the first sure. round you know, available vaccines, they couldn't figure out, how, you know, oh, I'm 80 years old. I'm going to log on to the website and track over the next five hours where the vaccines are available. Obviously not. And so at the end of her article, she puts a note. If you're having any trouble, call me and give us her cell phone number. She ended up helping 300 That's amazing. seniors between 80 and 90 yeah. uh, to get their vaccines. And we had this great conversation about like, this is why she got into local news. She's like, the whole right. point is like, I'm supposed to be helping people who are in my community. And obviously going online is going to be an impossibility. If you're lucky, you have a 50 year old kid who can help you or a, or a 17 year old grandson who can help you. But most, many people don't and navigating it was impossible. And she said, she just felt so proud. Like I am doing the thing that I got into this business for. And I've had that feeling. I remember again, covering Katrina would be a good example of like, this is why I'm here. This is why I was sent here. I was here to do a job and, and tell a story and make some change and bring some attention to this. And so right. when you lose those local journalists, it's, it's just devastating. Yeah, it really is. And you don't become aware of so many issues that are right under your feet, you know, which, you know, for people who are working and they're taking care of the kids, they might take the, you know, take the time to try to be involved in that. But when they're unaware that something's even going on, you know, things like voting and things like how property is going to be used. And for example, in the, uh, the the part of the series that we do that looks at housing in Norfolk, Virginia, um, you know, you see they've decided to close down public housing. That sounds amazing. They're going to make it better. Yeah, but, right, there's a history in Norfolk of closing it down, and they did this in New Orleans too, right? And then taking so long to reopen it that everybody kind of scatters. Technically, when they apply for the grant to do this, people have to be moved into better places. They have to be part of this effort to desegregate the community. But what really happens is those people move into as bad or worse neighborhoods. So the the actual moving, and partly here's why. There's no public housing in the good neighborhoods. There's no place to get an affordable one bedroom or two bedroom or three bedroom if you have a little kid. So there's no affordable housing being built. So you look at a place like Norfolk, where do those people go? They leave, they don't come back. So even though technically they're allowed to, they don't actually build back to the same size and they take years and years and years. Well, look, guess what? If you have a 10 year old, you're not going to wait five years to figure out your housing. You're going to, you know, you're going to move somewhere where you can get that kid back in school, but it's so disruptive. And so we were very interested in looking at um, what they're doing in public housing in Norfolk, where many times they've told everybody, you can definitely move back in and you look back and there's a big field because no one built it. You know why? Because it's close to downtown. It has a ton of value and they actually want to develop it into something fabulous. They just can't do it in the short term because the grant to redo the public housing insists upon rehousing those people. But at a certain point, they'll be able to turn around and just and just leverage their proximity to downtown. It's just brutally unfair, frankly. Yeah. One of the ones that I saw that really struck me as one of those, ah, you know, just sad kind of things was your school to prison Ugh. pipeline story. There's, there just seems like so much uh, futility in How a lot of that. How do you arrest kindergartners? They were saying- Oh, that was terrible. They had 36, I think the number was 36 kids in elementary school who the cops had put cuffs on. And so you wonder- like, You have to describe that 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 scene that you show with the little it, girl it, getting arrested. Oh yeah. my God, it's That so was terrible. I couldn't believe it. And they're, they're literally, you have an unruly child and they, they, you know, because, because you have what they call, um, you know, these sort of officers who are in the schools for assistance, but really they're cops, you know, it's a classic, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Well, guess what? If you're a cop and there's a fight, you're looking at it as this is assault one, not, oh, two kids. These two guys have been fighting with each other all all year. Bring them to the principal's office. Let's get their parents in here. And so this is the school to prison pipeline. You're looking at kids who now are getting into the system. If you're cuffing an elementary schooler, you are putting them into a system where they are now more likely to be incarcerated. How, and, how old was that girl that they well, the were girl, putting in the prison? Six. six. Insane. But there's a whole bunch of those. That's there's crazy. Guys, so yeah, what crazy. we're talking yeah, about. 36 they, elementary schoolers. 30, they, were, 36. they handcuffed this 
little girl. And, and she's put her, crying and begging and absolutely. crying and begging. Oh. There is no reason to be handcuffing anybody in elementary school unless they're trying to kill somebody. With, you know, They have a gun or something. But there is no reason. I mean, there is no excuse. I was shocked when I saw that. And it's not you know? the only one. There's so many around the country. You know, and, you know, a lot of times I think when kids do have meltdowns, sometimes you need to literally sit there with them and say, you're going to sit here and you're not going to do anything. Like we're mm-hmm. just, like, you can spend an hour just putting a kid in a room where they can't hurt themselves. So that, they can have their meltdown. How is that allowed that police can do that with children? Like where does, where does that permission come from? Those, uh, officers, I'm trying to remember the name of those officers. Um, they have, you know, they're there to assist in the school. And again, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. When you have a situation, the whole thing is set up that the cops come in. Well, the cops come in as cops. When the cops come in, they don't say, listen, I can take the next hour and a half and sit on the floor with this kid. And we're just going to calm her down. Right. Like, but why are they there? I, I don't, I'm trying to understand why are they there in an elementary school? Because they're supposed to be, you know, adding to safety. It's ridiculous. But it's who's so in danger in an elementary school? That is the $64,000 question. And I think really rethinking this, you know, is very important because this is the school to prison pipeline. It just is. And so looking at that in, in what was the most incarcerated zip code in mm-hmm. uh, North Nashville, you know, in a time when Nashville, you know, Nashville is a beautiful city, you know, and they mm-hmm. call themselves the it city. And you're like, yeah, except that, over here, you have some problems. You have some issues. Yeah, you know, your people are really struggling over here, and you and I just think nowadays we're very apt to just ignore that. We're apt to ignore people here. I live in in West Palm, Florida, and there's a line every week for the food bank. People line up in their cars because of Florida. Everybody's driving. You know, you're like, what happens to these people lining up it for food at a church? Is not like this is not a solution. Right. To your hunger problem. This will get you through this week and maybe next week. But like, how are we going to help these people? And this right. is a scenario across the country right now. And it just seems to me that so many people just don't care that much, honestly. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as a writer, language is very important to me. And I think the way we communicate about things sometimes hurts our ability to really find solutions. Like, like, I understand why people brought up mass incarceration and why that was an issue. I get it completely. But to me, the more pernicious issue is circular incarceration. Mm. You know, um, that this is a, a a circular relationship that when you see the young age that it's happening and teaching this relationship between police and, you know, young blacks, which is a horrible thing to be teaching you know, that this is where you belong in a cop car, you know, and in jail and your life should have no future from the beginning, you know, and these kids who have it tough already, a lot of them, you know, just have it tough already, you know, the nature of this relationship, why it's not being attacked as much as just a numbers issue, you know? Yeah, no, and it's exactly right. And when you layer on top of that schools that are failing, right, that are really not serving the kids, it's not like, oh my God, we have handed you the most amazing education. Why are you not taking advantage of it? In many of these cases, kids don't have books. They don't have good school. They're, they're, they're really struggling within the school system. And so, and sometimes, you know, sometimes their parents don't really know how to navigate it as well. And so we really wanted to focus on like, who are the parents who are doing things to help parents and who are the students who are succeeding and who's intervening in some of these things? Because it's very, how do you ask people to work two jobs, three jobs sometimes, and also keep an eye on your kids, anybody from the pandemic who's had to do online school in some capacity and do their job knows like that's an impossible ask. And my, my producer on the show that we do, which is called Matter of Fact, has a four and a six-year-old. And literally in the middle of pandemic, she's like, I cannot function. I, I cannot put to a four-year-old and a six-year-old and make sure that they're in front of a camera all day, you know, and, and also do my job. It's just, it, it, you, you know, I can, I can juggle it for a day and a half maybe, but at some point it becomes impossible and you need real support. And so I, I think that that's what they're in the middle of. And I wish Nashville seeing itself as the it city would value everybody in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar thing. We do, we do an episode on Hilton head Island and black land loss, sure. you know, yeah, and, so. and heirs property 
Um, so crazy. Course, I'd never even heard of such a thing. It's yeah. so crazy. So in Hilton Head, uh, one of the first um, places where blacks were free uh, right. at the end of the, the Civil War. And so um, they were able to buy land. So at one point, 80 percent of the population was black in Hilton Head. Yeah. But they have developed it so much and really turned it into a very shishi vacation residency type place. Sure. <laughs> right. uh, so a lot of that land has kind of disappeared. But you know, there are people who own property from their great, great, great grandfather or whatever, uh, but they they can't they can't get the value out of it because it might be worth 30 million dollars waterfront property, 30 acres on Hilton Head mm-hmm. Island. But because the way heirs property works, they don't actually have a title to the land. They own it with all of right. the heirs. So you can't leverage it. You can't go to the bank and say, listen, this is worth $38 million. So I want a mortgage on it. I want to figure this out. So most of the people live in trailers on there. I was just going to interrupt just so people know exactly what that is. Uh, many times the people that own the land initially, like they didn't write wills, they didn't bequeath it to people directly. So what happens is you have heirs uh, rights to that, where anybody that is a potential heir has a right to that property or an ownership stake in that property. And that could be people you've never even met. Exactly. And, and so you might have a hundred, a hundred people who own it. <laughs> right, you know, right. And you might only have 10 people who live there, which is but nuts. any of those 100 heirs at any time can say, I think I'd like to sell. And so then they can live anywhere because there's no, no one has thought about like, well, let's fix these rules around how air property should work. I mean, remember the original owners, because they were from Africa, their idea of like how land was owned, you didn't just deed it to somebody, you you know, all the heirs would have a, a chance to live on the land. So they really need to update and upgrade the way they think about heirs property. But when you have developers kind of interested, they actually prefer that people can't pay the taxes, right? Because then they can swoop in and get 30 acres for a song, or they can, you know, they can, uh, see somebody struggling and get a relative to sell uh, some of their property. And so they might get 30 acres for $4 million when it's worth $30 million. And I think for a lot of the people, they, they don't want to sell. They live there. They, that's their homeland. So it's a really fascinating you know, case. But again, I think it's back to that same question of, do you value the people who live here? You know, do you consider the Gullah people on Hilton Head Island important to your history of your island? Or do you not care? And if you, the way you answer that yeah. question will tell me what's going to happen next. I think there's a lot of people who are pushing for, they are important. Their history is important. They're important mm-hmm. to our tourism. And, and we want them to be here and figure out ways in which we can work around this issue of heirs property. It just has to be legally tweaked. Yeah. And it is complicated by the actual people in the family that are messing it up as well. You know, you know, people see big numbers in front of them, but they don't really know what that means, you know, and that sort of thing. Taking advantage of those situations, that's a pretty uh, messy situation there. Yeah. Or, or even the taxes, you know, Hilton Head is so developed that something right. that had very low taxes 20 years ago, yeah. now your taxes are $12,000 a year. Well, if you're 80, I mean, one guy we interviewed was 80 years old and a pastor, where where's he going to get twelve thousand dollars a year to pay his taxes? Right, you know. Yeah, so people pass that basket go, around. <laughs> right, developers go and they you know and they they jump in and try to right. get those distressed properties. So it's been very it's been a really interesting look at you know all of again these things that are systems. It's not one guy that we can say that guy is yeah. a racist and he's Stop a bad dude. That. It's like it's a system that has to be changed and you have to decide do do you value these people in this system yeah and it's funny that once again we have a situation that many times starts off racist or whatever and then some of those parts of it aren't necessarily there so it's harder for people to point a finger to that as an issue and i guess part of what you're doing here in some of these is is making sure that people understand the legacy of these situations and not just the the currency well you know listen I, i remember i would talk to people about black wealth you know, and you get a lot of these, well, you know, people should be working harder. They should pull themselves up by your bootstraps. You're like, yeah, what, tell me about your family uh, and what they did 400 years ago and, and what other, you know, like, let's compare that. Let's talk about opportunity. Let's talk about the GI Bill, right? Oh, so your dad had access to the GI Bill and, and bought a house in Levittown. So, you know, my parents couldn't buy a house in certain parts of Long Island. No one would sell it to them. So are we still on everything's fair? Probably not. And I think people need to, because we do such a poor job in teaching history, 
and explaining things that, you know, I think we really need to, to spell it out. I remember, I mean, I was old when I realized that the 19th amendment that gave women the right to vote was like, gave women the right to vote asterisk, (laughs) (laughs) not all women. (laughs) And you realize that you, Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Did not get the right to vote till the 1960s. And Native Americans were not considered American enough to vote till the 1960s. So I think we don't do a good job of kind of framing for people. And now when I was doing an event the other day for the 19th Amendment, and I kept saying, gave some women the right to vote. (laughs) Finally, everyone just changed the script because I just kept adding it in like, Some women got the right to vote and a whole heck of a lot of women didn't get the right to vote from the 19th Amendment, which, by the way, yay, 19th Amendment, big fan. But let's be very clear on what that actually did and who that actually served. So I I don't think we do a good job in terms of just educating people about here's here's what really happened. And 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 so how do you think about making things just and fair? I think that's a reasonable question. Well, I'll do a small plug for my docuseries on Netflix right now called Amend, looking at the 14th Amendment. And we, we talk about that uh, that Love issue it. in it. We have Ida B. Wells and some other people who wanted to be part of that movement were kind of excluded from some of those marches and everything uh, contemporaneously because because of that very issue. You know, they didn't want to get caught up in that. It's fascinating. So you did an episode about police. I have not seen that, but this is kind of the issue of our day. Yeah, Chicago. So to speak. And you were in Chicago, which, you know, has had problems for a very long time. They're not just recent problems. Tell well, me they what... started off. Chicago police started as slave patrols. So it kind of goes, <laughs> <Right. laughs> goes back. They kind of got so not to not to bring anybody down, but like it goes yeah. from there. And, you know, I talked to this woman, Anjanette Young. You'll remember she was the woman. They had that horrible videotape of police had burst into our apartment because they had a search warrant. Oh, yeah, they had the that. wrong address. Yeah. So yeah. Anjanette Young, and she's she pleading with like, them and everything. Oh my yeah. gosh. Church lady. Yeah. Social yeah. worker. Absolutely. And for more than 13 minutes, she stands there bare ass naked. I know. And I just, and you know, it's so like, it was actually so painful to do an interview with a person who just feels so wrong. Like, and, and meanwhile, the place is crawling with cops, right? Because they've all burst in to, to, to do a raid on the wrong, apparently, apartment. And she's saying this is the wrong apartment. And she's, you know, she's in hysterics. They keep telling her, calm down. But not one person in the room said, guys, can I just get her a bathrobe? Guys, let me exactly. just get her a Like, not one of all the people in that room, not one person. Like, there was just zero humanity. And to me, like. Animal that, first. Animal first, human second. Absolutely. And I just feel that that to me was the most painful thing about this story, right? That that this woman's humanity, basic humanity. I actually can even understand police getting the wrong apartment. Like I I get how that can happen in the chaos. But this idea that she didn't even deserve to be covered, like who are these people? Who Who are these people who just don't see a human being? And don't say, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Let me get you a robe. Let me get you a blanket. Let's just blanket, wrap it around her. Let her sit over here for a minute away from everybody. You know, I just and it was just very painful to talk to her about, you know, what it's like when people just think of you as like literally lower than an animal. And that's, you know, and I obviously she's going to win a gajillion dollars at some point from the, the Chicago police because they pay out because they don't, they, it's not their money, right? This money ultimately, not just in Chicago, but in many cities comes from taxpayers and come, you know, it's, it's not like, wow, because we had to pay this woman $25 million, we can't hire a whole bunch of people because it's coming out of our budget. It is not. And so I do think they need to really rethink what does reform look like? What is who, who, who do you want in those jobs? I tell you, if that were my staff in any way, shape or form, but literally I had to be like, everyone's fired. If I, if, if you guys cannot see a human being standing there, I don't want to work with you people like we're done. And the idea that those cops, most of them, they will not be disciplined. They will, they will end up, I think they're up to a billion dollars in the last maybe 10 years that they've spent in fines and, you know, and, and, but there's no thing that, connects back to them that makes them feel that money. Yeah. I remember the Laquan McDonald uh, case was so problematic. And even the mayor 
you know, Obama's boy. I, I want to say Ari Emanuel because he's an agent, but it's his brother, Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> yeah. Right, Rahm. Yeah. You know, he, you know, was taking his time with that, too. You know, it it, it feels like it doesn't even matter what side of the aisle you're on. No, I think situation. that's really true. I think there, everybody's on the side of the aisle of don't pay out the money. Right. That, that the idea of justice and fairness was irrelevant. And so, listen, I think it's just been very it was very sad to talk to this woman and kind of have her fully understand that nobody cares. There was not one person who was in that room who thought, you know, let, Oh my goodness, let me just take a moment and cover her up. And she's just naked with all these people in her apartment. And I promise you, if that were a puppy that somehow had gotten stuck in a door or something, three officers would be there trying to rescue that puppy and help it. Right. I mean, I I just don't think people cared and it's very, it's very disturbing. It's incredibly upsetting. What is, did you find out, I haven't seen that one. Did, did you, um, getting into what is at the heart of that, of the problem in Chicago right now in terms of the crime and relationship with the police and all the things that are happening there? I, I think a lot of it is the police union. The guy who was running the police union, he's since stepped down, you know, he's a, a, a little Trumper. And, um, and I think a lot of his strategy was, you know, if you don't like it, you should get out of here. And I don't, I think, I think the police unions actually, and policing generally, you have to shift the kind of people you're hiring, right? Again, if you have a whole bunch of people in an apartment and not one sees the humanity of a person, you're hiring the wrong people. There was a great um, video of that man, elderly white dude who was, who tripped and fell and was put, whatever. And I think it was in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And you'll remember as the people walk by him, you see blood coming out of his head. I remember that. Right? Yeah. And, and one officer like bends down, like, geez, this guy is bleeding. And the officer yeah. behind him shoves him forward, right? And right. pushes him. Like, yeah. don't you dare even think about stopping for this guy who's fallen on his head and is bleeding. And it's, it's just, you know, to me, it's, who are you hiring? I think there's a real challenge with black officers now because they're they're they understand the issues sometimes better mm-hmm. than anybody else. You know, they see mm-hmm. uh, we talked to a couple of black officers, one who said he wouldn't join the union. He quit the union. Uh, another one who said, like, this is problematic. I don't want to be fighting with the community we're serving. <laughs> we should be serving the community we're serving. Like, that's the gig. That's the job. So I, I think a lot of this the entire episode is looking at like, what does policing look like and what should it look like? And I think it's just about who do you hire and what are the what are the tactics? Yeah. And I wonder, you know, it's funny, uh, the old short story, clothes make the man, you know, I wonder if there's a little bit of that in this, too. You know, there's a I've always said it's not so much a black white problem for me with police. It's a black blue problem. And to me, it's about that blue shield that is part of what changes people. Like if that man was bleeding out of his ear and there wasn't this protest, you know, there wouldn't have been a problem with helping him. But once there's a conflict between police and people, now you're, there's a blue shield thing. You have to, it's us against them. You cannot help that man because that is a violation of the shield, you know? And it seems to me that black officers are part of that shield too and get caught up in it. I think that many of them are, I mean, I've not interviewed a hundred, but I've interviewed a handful and, uh, I think they certainly talk about being more conflicted and yet there are very specific rules. Right. And are you going to go against the people who are your brothers who are supposed Mm -hmm. to have your back? Probably not. But also many just feel like I, you come into these communities and you're, again, this is my community. These are people who look like me, not every officer, certainly, but uh, whether they're white or black, but I, I think that, you know, what does reform look like? What is what would, would change look like? And what kinds of people do you need to be hiring for these jobs? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a big part of the question. Is How do we answer that question? Because, you know, right now, uh, the biggest answer is defund. But, you know, it to me, it's well, kind that of... means a, something. I mean, I, I, go ask 12 people what defund yeah, the police means. And you get 12, <laughs> literally 12 different answers from... Every I place think, is different, too. Right. Yeah. And everyone will either say, no, police, we, there should be no police officers at all. At two, <laughs> right, right. Oh, I just think defund means, you know, rejigger the, the budget so that there's, a, you know, a health and welfare part of it. Listen, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think that that's sort of the conversation in each community that has to happen. There's no question to me that police should not be involved in calls that require some expertise about mental health, right? They're just, you see it so often that it ends in a disaster because they're brought out to calls where somebody 
has actually called the police. I mean, the now we know so many people who will say this person's having an emotional breakdown, but I'm not going to call the police because the chances that this person's going to get killed by the police because I've called in order to try to help this person who's in an emotional turmoil. Right. Yeah. But it's then on the other side of it, that doesn't get talked about a lot, though, there's a lot of crime in those areas that they're not mental health problems. They're, you know, they're, they're crime, they're crime issues that the people really do need the help of police that are doing. Absolutely. Right and I don't, yeah. I don't, I, I know that there's a sense of like black people don't want policing, but I think black people do. <laughs> no. want people. Yeah. It is not like that at all. Like, people that is would not, like to have yeah. policing. What they don't yeah. want is their kid harassed on his yeah. way, you know, to the bus stop. What they don't want is stop and frisk as we had in New York city, where if you were a black kid and you know, pretty much everybody could, you know, and it was a way to terrorize people. Anybody could come up with what counted as a reasonable suspicion. You know, you just had to look like you could be suspicious and then they could frisk you. It's interesting. So I was doing this event the other day for this big insurance company and they had an executive black guy, big guy, super friendly. Everyone loves him. He's like beloved in the company. And he starts telling this story to his colleagues because they wanted to open up the conversation from their black employees to just tell any story they wanted to to their white colleagues. And, and he's like super highly paid dude. And he says, you know, I, um, I heard noise in my basement the other night. So I go downstairs, back doors open in the basement. And he says, nine o'clock at night. And I stood there thinking, do mm-hmm. I call the police because someone's maybe has broken in? Or do I just close the door and go to bed? And in the end, he tells his colleagues, he just decided to close the door and go to bed because it was nine o'clock at night. And he was afraid at nine o'clock at night, if he called the police that, in fact, there's a pretty good chance that he would just, you know, be killed, open himself up to an interaction. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting because I think to see his colleague, they were stuck. Like they could not imagine this idea that this guy, big guy, friendly fantastic suits, super successful, like that he has the same thought pattern that mm. all the other black people have, right? Like <laughs> that, that this, right. there's a moment where you would choose to not have the police because you might get killed in that interaction. And it was just fascinating. And then he told them he's a really friendly guy. And he said, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, that I'm so friendly, right? I know the name of the security guards. I know the name of the guys at the front desk, the lady who runs your bag through the metal detail. I know her name. He's like, because one day I'm going to come in, not in a suit and I'm not going to be allowed in. And I'm going to need those people to vouch for me that they know me. So I go way over the top so that, you know, that they all know me. And I think think it was so eye-opening for his colleagues, right? They just they didn't think of him as like the George Floyd guy. They thought of him as this, like those rules and those issues and those problems, those apply to George Floyd, but they don't apply to these kind of people. The right kind of people don't have those issues. And it was so fascinating to see them just stunned, just, just blown away by what he was telling them. And so I do think these conversations do move people to understand issues better um, because they're, some of these things are ridiculous. They're absolutely ridiculous. Right. Um, what was the biggest thing that was a surprise to you in any of these episodes that, that you did? Was there, because you've covered so many things, was there something you go, wow, I had no idea that was going yeah, on? Yeah, I think that the elementary students who were putting cuffs, that was yeah, crazy. Yeah, that I, is that, crazy. That was a shocker for one. And then the number, you know, for every one white woman who dies in childbirth, four black women die. Adjusted, even if you're looking at college educated, it's just it is just a racial thing. And so why are there so many black women and who are dying in childbirth or whose infants uh, die? I mean, the number in America, then America's infant mortality and maternal mortality numbers are so bad for a developed country. It's crazy. So why do you think that is? Well, it's a combination. Again, we got into, you know, systemic racism within in in healthcare. The number of women who had lost their babies or had issues or even lost family members who were giving birth who said, we tried to tell the doctor. In fact, one case, the woman was a doctor who was talking to the doctor about her her relative. And she said, you know, I think it's this. And the doctor just would not listen. And you see the data that shows that a lot of these doctors you know, think that black women have a higher pain tolerance. Right, right. Black women are complaining when they uh, really aren't feeling anything. I mean, talk to Serena Williams about her birth, you know, and yeah. you think, like, if Serena Williams can't right, right. take her seriously, <laughs> yeah. 
So I think it's a, it was amazing to me to see this idea of just how do you get women heard and helped? And in many instances, I think working with a doula seems to be a very viable uh, alternative because one, the doula is in the birthing room advocating for the woman. And two, the doula really knows the woman. They spend so much time together that, you know, they, they just really know each other. And so there's got to be solutions, but it is amazing to me, you know, just the the difference, even for, again, for people, if you adjust for income, that black women with good jobs and college educated still do much worse than their white counterparts. It's crazy. So I think those were the two things that were, were just stunning to me. Yeah. Have you uh, uh, been taking a look at how the vaccinations are are occurring right now in the black brown communities is is there resistance to it is there uh, an obstacle of getting it there like what are, what are the biggest issues with that right now that you've recognized it's like a two-way thing happening well, the narrative like at first was well you know because of tuskegee black people won't get vaccines when you actually look at the data first of all more black people want to get vaccines than than white people who are republicans so they're the twice the number of republicans say they won't get vaccines more Black people want to get the vaccine, but it's it's access. I, I think some of that's being fixed because I think it's being really tackled. We do it a lot on the weekly show that I do that's called Matter of Fact. It's a Sunday show. So we talk a lot about that, but but a lot of it is access. As as states open up, you know, now in New York, I think 18 and up or 16 and up in Connecticut can get a vaccine. So it's getting a little easier. But there was a story in New York, must have been up in the Bronx or something, where you, you know, where there are vaccines made available and everybody who was coming in was driving in, was a white person driving yes. in from Westchester. You're like, exactly. you literally are not from that, here. That happened here in LA. It's like white oh, people I'm with sure. Black Lives Matter t-shirts uh, were right. in line in LA. Exactly, but I'm in so line better. for my vaccine. So yeah. I think that's some of it, but in terms of, is there a sense of, I don't trust the vaccine? Turns out that is not really true, that black people have understood the impact of the vaccine. In fact, don't want to send their kids back to full-time school until they're mm-hmm. vaccinated. Uh, really under, you know, they've suffered more in terms of death and illness, mm-hmm. uh, which makes a lot of sense. So I think that early narrative of Tuskegee, now black people don't trust doctors. Uh, yeah, well, there's always some of that, but, you know. Because it doesn't seem to be, uh, listen, uh, there's a whole bunch of white people who didn't have Tuskegee and-, and, and They feel the same way, yeah. Fine. They're not getting vaccinated either. It, it's, it's in a different cultural lane, I think. It's more, you know, in this distrust of government lane more than connected to that, because- Right, yeah, I agree. There, there's a lot of people that do fall in that, but for whatever reasons. And a lot of that is how people- are really so willing to believe these myths that are being put out um, by, you know, these news organizations, even like Fox News and the whole election and all that stuff. And people are so willing to believe these things. You know, There is a very hilarious uh, Instagram where this woman says, do I know what's in the vaccine? No, I don't. Am I going to get it? Yeah. Do I know what's in grill? Do I know what's in America's cheese? No, I don't. Do I eat it every day? Yes, I do. You know, I just like this idea of like, are you an epidemiologist? Like, why the fuck would right. you know what's in your vaccine? Yeah. Come on. No, it, it is crazy. Uh, well, they just politicized it, I think. Why are the news organizations, and I'm saying organizations as opposed to women, why is it so, why does it feel so divisive right now? Or so divided, I should say. Both, it's both divided and divisive. They seem like in camps. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think some of it is really competing for clicks, right? Because you're actually competing against social media for your content and everything is content now. So it all becomes distilled into sound bites. I was doing an interview with a news organization the other day and the woman said to me, so talk to me about your feud with Megyn Kelly. And I literally was like, there's not one. Like to have a feud, I feel like I'd have to care and she'd have to care and I can... I'm pretty convinced that she doesn't care, nor I do I care. So there's no, but I get it, right? And this was a news program, but the whole, right, the whole thing was we need some kind of drama to give the energy of, uh, of, of a clash in some way. So I think that's part of it. I think that our, our White House correspondents are mostly not good. If you look at those questions from that press conference, they were embarrassing. And I, you know, it used to be back in the day, when I was doing anchoring more, uh, 
you know, you'd have the White House correspondents didn't write books and make names for themselves until <laughs> yes. the end of their career. I mean, how great was Sam Donald, for Christ's right. sake? And, and it was like, and he yeah. did all that, like, at the end of his career, he's like, now I'm going to talk about my career. But these guys, they would all spend like six months, eight, a year, two years covering Trump and then write a book about it. And usually right. it was a terrible book. And Sam and Donald he, didn't care who was president, you know, whether absolutely. you're Democrat or Republican. He did not care. He was going to ask tough questions. Yeah. But he also didn't. I think some of these White House correspondents see themselves as very, very special. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, like demanding a presser, you're like you demanded a presser and then your questions were absolute shit. They were lame and you should be embarrassed and no one should do another presser for you. How about figuring out serving the people, serve the American (laughs) people, ask good questions. It's not brain surgery. It's just, you know, think about how would I best serve my audience? Well, gee, I'm in this part of the country. Mm -hmm. My community might want to know this and this and this. These should be my questions. But sometimes it seems to me you need to make that you got to have a soundbite because that soundbite is what's going to travel. Right. Mm-hmm. So you need to have that that moment, that back and forth, because whether it's a good question or a bad question, if it gets picked up, then it's worthwhile. Yeah, I, I feel like it. I'd love to get your observation on this. I feel like that relationship was kind of weakened under both Obama and Trump for completely different reasons. You know, like I think a lot of white journalists were afraid to ask Obama tough questions sometimes, you know, for fear of, you know, looking racist or whatever, you know. And let a lot of things slide by that really immigration. Hi. Thank you. That's just one. Literally. But but uh, really let it slide by. And Trump, it was the opposite. You know, Trump was always this foe. And a lot of stuff that Trump did too kind of undermine the whole nature of that relationship in a whole different way. You know, yeah, but I think that there was a plus to engaging with Trump, right? Like I think there that was we I don't know that there was a plus to engaging with Obama in some capacity, but I think there was this plus. If Trump picks on you, that's a plus, right? You can market mm-hmm. that the next day. I don't right. know. I, I really have just lost so much. Oh, 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 from their point of view, you're talking from about. From their point of view, yeah, right? That and they I, thought, I think that okay, I, I can win some points by fighting Trump here. Yeah. And it travels, mm-hmm. right? It just becomes, look, I mean, there are a number of journalists who put whatever mean thing Trump said about them was their headline in their Twitter profile. <laughs> you know, like it was just, it's just oh. so weird. Yeah, it's just been a- There's a lot of a, cult of personality as well. Absolutely. Too, you know? And I think people are trying to develop their own cult in a way mm-hmm. um, by, uh, you know, there's so many of them who are just it, bad, really, really bad. And their takes are bad. I, I, I do think the New York Times is trying to figure itself out. They wrote the other day about what happened in Georgia. You know, Democrats say that Georgia, blah, blah, blah. You're like, but not just Democrats. Like, why is that Democrats say? Why isn't that actual lawyers and people who look at voting rights and not being able to give water to people in line? That's not a Democrat say. I mean, that's just crazy, but they just don't seem to want to be on the side of democracy and explain things to their viewers. One thing mm-hmm. we do on our show, which I actually think, I don't brag about my show a lot, but on this show. No, brag. That, yeah, brag. We actually do this well, which is like, <laughs> so what is the First Amendment? When we talked about democracy, right. what exactly are we saying? When people are sworn into office, literally, what do they swear to? You know, and you're like, mm-hmm. I don't really know. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I knew they were sworn in, but. I I actually don't know what they swore to. When yeah. you take the immigration test to become a citizen, what do they ask you? Could you yeah. answer it as an as a, a native born citizen? You know, and so we try to do like serve people yeah. and talk about the things that matter to them, not like I'm going to get points on the board because if I can have a rat a tat tat back and forth, that gives me something to market that evening on the news. And right. I, I do think a lot is, is set up that way, to be honest. And I think what some of the danger is, and I'll, I'll make up a term right now. Um, I'll call it agreement. I'll steal it if it's good. Uh, I like sure. It. Well, <laughs> I'm a writer. It's okay. But I, I'm going to call it agreement ignorance is what I'm going to call it. And I think what it is, is that people will agree with a major point, but they will not investigate beyond that. And so it creates a hole in in discussions and fighting things. I'll give you an example. This whole voter ID situation in Georgia, which people say is racist, and then the agreement ignorance says, yeah, it's racist, and then it stops right there. It's like, well, but but what do we do about it? I mean, okay, so you need an ID. Why isn't there a movement to get people that have trouble getting IDs get identification? When people had trouble getting registered, Jesse Jackson was out there saying, let's get people registered. You know, that was one of the biggest problems with the voting voting rights was the actual act of black people getting registered to vote. And he took charge of that. You know, very good. Why is there not a movement? 
Well, I think immigration is the same thing, right? You know, it's a crisis. And you're like, but is it? I mean, right. let's, so let's look back. Let's just take the last dozen years. Right. And let's see. Show me a map of, of the, the, the number of people who are coming to the border, because I'll be able to tell you if there's a surge and there's a crisis by comparing it to the last 12 randomly picking 12 years. Once again, spoiler alert, it's been going on as long as I've been living in California. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Turns out that there was higher numbers under past president. So maybe not a surge, right? It just, right. it's just these narratives that are kind of, you know, I think flung around and then easily bought by reporters. And I, listen, I think a lot is asked of reporters. You do have to be an immigration expert, but sometimes you hear people and they're like, people come and present themselves at the border. Like that's legally, that's the, that is the legal way we do it in America. Like that actually is the process. You might hate it. You might love it, but that is the process under yeah. the law. <laughs> you know? yes. and like, so I don't know what you're arguing because that is the process. Uh-huh. Fight against the process. If you don't like Thank the process. You. Exactly. So. Which is, you know, going back to voter ID thing, the biggest problem for me, once again, is that is the people that are making that law are in complete power and control. You have to take that power away or share that power. You know, you can't just yell at that power. That's not the way things are going to get done. You know, um, where do you get your news? So is there any sources that you, that you feel like you trust? You know, I love Twitter and because Twitter, of course, is everything. So I get a lot of uh, I get a lot of conservative news. I mean, I think The Wall Street Journal is pretty conservative. The Economist conservative. Um, so I read a ton, but I really get it through, through Twitter. I don't watch a lot of stuff. Um, I, 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 you know, I think Twitter gives you very good access to everything, which means that I sure. sign up for 99 different, you know. Yeah. 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 I do that with that. Somehow they're renewing themselves every yeah, year. Yeah, I know. Exactly. How did this stuff? happen? Yeah. Well, you know, I appreciate you being on, you guys, Disrupt and Dismantle, which is not only on BET, it's also on some other outlets. You, yes, Smithsonian's going to air it as well, and I think a, a couple other Viacom properties. So we're very excited that it's going to have a bigger audience even. Great, because it's all kind of connected these days. Yeah. It's kind of the nature of In the of family, it. as they like to say. Yes, well, keep fighting the fight out there, uh, Soledad O'Brien. We really appreciate having you there. It's always great seeing you on TV and seeing you Thanks right here. You. I love too. it. I love it. <laughs> So go see it, you guys. Disrupt and dismantle. You don't even have to go anywhere. Just turn on your TV. And uh, it's probably already on BET. So just keep watching. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Solidette. You bet. Anytime, Larry. <laughs>